Amanda. And I'm Kristen. And, and we are the Extra Sisters. Sisters. So sit back, relax, and let's get creepy. Welcome to another haunted happy hour. And this one might be a, a little on the little, you know, I'm going to say nerdier side, but <laughs> I don't think reading is nerdy anymore. I think that was just kind of one of those things that's like outdated and tired, to be perfectly honest with you. So in this one, we're going to talk about novelists and writers that kind of are more on the darker side, on the horror side of things. And when I say darker, because I actually have one that I'm going to mention that actually wasn't traditionally horror, but as has grown, people tend to think is a darker themed author. But we're going to talk about horror novelists and things that influenced even horror movies and so we each have some authors we're going to talk about. So hopefully you find that interesting. And if you don't, well, you got a whole catalog of like 250 something plus. bunch of other stuff. <laughs> yeah. So feel free to go uh, listen to those. So we're going to talk about that because we're both avid readers. Now, I will say as an adult, it's been a lot harder for me to enjoy reading because I think life as an adult reader is just hard. For- yeah. It's so time consuming and hard to find the time. Yeah, exactly. And like when I was a kid, I just reading was one of those things like my mom and I every we would pick a book and we would sit down and read a couple chapters every night. And it was definitely like a highlight of like my memory of being a kid was sitting down and reading books with my mom. So and we would I remember I never was good at numbers and like math is never something I excelled at. So I always clung to reading and words and writing because especially as a perfectionist kid, and I think you can relate a lot to this, when you're not good at something, it really hurts. Yeah. So when you are good at something, you just cling to it all that much more. So when I realized, and when my parents realized I was going to be really good at reading, it's something that I started doing really, really young. Like I was always really ahead, you know, of like the grade level reading or whatever. So we were, you know, always really into like chapter books and stuff when I was a Mm -hmm. young kid. And I started getting into kind of, I'm not going to say darker things, but like I'll get into it a little bit later, but like there are horror stories for kids, you know? Yeah, definitely. And that was something I was drawn to even then. And of course my mom, we read, she fucking loved these and she still is like, if I ever have kids, which she might be a little disappointed because I don't think I will, but she fucking brought me, we read all of the Little House on the Prairie books when I was in Mm -hmm. elementary school and I liked them, but like you know now it's like I wanted when I got into Harry Potter she was like she was in like you know church and stuff she was like I don't know if you should read those there's witchcraft in them oh my god yeah she ended up letting me like it that's good it ended up being fine like Harry Potter was a big part of my life she ended up taking me to all the book releases after she got over it but she heard all of that talk you know I'm from the south and you know Christianity and all that stuff but she ended up buying me one and it ended up being fine. But well, that's when I really started getting into, you know, the big books and stuff. So, yeah, definitely. I had a much different upbringing with reading. I was the only child of a single parent. My mom didn't have time to like read me bedtime stories and stuff. She was always working later. She'd bring work home. So I actually struggled. I was in remedial reading classes for a few years in elementary school and then I ended up with this teacher and she's still like a part of my family now she's I call her my second mom I ended up with this teacher who was my remedial reading teacher and Jerry Sims shout out love you she got me into reading and I never looked back like I love it so much I'm one of those 
people that I have like four different books going at the same time and I know exactly what's going on in all of them just so I can go between different genres and stuff. Oh, I can't do that. <laughs> I'm like a one one thing at a time. My food can't touch. Like it's very like the kind of person I am, you know, like yeah, one thing at a time. I mean, that's a testament to teachers because you can have parents at home like I did teaching you everything and you can have, and that's no fault of your mother. She was a single mm-hmm. mom doing the best she could, but a teacher at school really putting in the work and being there for you. And now you're an avid reader and you, you know, may have been behind for a few years, but now obviously you're not. So yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm one of those like proof positive of we need good freaking teachers out there and there are good ones. And they need to get paid more. Yes. Yeah. So we are going to talk about some of these authors. And now we are going to at least try to talk about authors that are a little uh, like we're going to talk about some major names, obviously, but try to stay away from like one of the ones, obviously, that is big on my list is Stephen King. So. I have read, both of us read It, which is obviously a huge undertaking. I loved mm-hmm. it. Kristen was like, I got it. <laughs> so, and we've read Carrie, which was wonderful. And I mean, mm-hmm. Stephen King just has like a long list of books you can read. And also his son has written some horror novels, or at least one that I know of. And yes. And Dean Koontz is a big one, too. It's mm-hmm. funny because with Stephen King and Dean Koontz, it's almost like if you're a Stephen King person, you don't like Dean Koontz. And if you're a Dean Koontz person, you don't like Stephen King. They have this <laughs> rivalry going on. And the most infamous and famous, you know, depending on how you feel about him, is Edgar Allan Poe. Right. Definitely. And it's almost like when you look up Edgar Allan Poe, there's been a lot of things done on his short stories and you know, it's but not as much as you would think as far as film goes and not enough good stuff, you know, which is so upsetting. Like he is the dark lord of an author. Why are we not doing more amazing films of his stuff? Like, where's the pit in the pendulum? An actual good movie. Where is the sh- where is the telltale heart? Come on, people. Oh, my God. The Telltale Heart, we read that in, like, middle school and it blew my mind. So scary, but so good. And that's the thing, like everyone knows Edgar Allan Poe and that's to be fair. Like that's totally fair. And you can't know Edgar Allan, like I'm sure some people, you can't know Edgar, like I have an Edgar Allan Poe complete works and that bitch is thick, <laughs> right. you know, like there's so much to Edgar Allan Poe. That man was tormented. <sighs> yes. Yes, he was. Fucked up human being. Yes. Which is great. One of my favorite poems is not even actually like his horror stuff but it's Annabelle Lee like I love that one so much he loved her so much and then she died and it's just so tragic yeah yeah fucked up he fucked Mm -hmm. up so we didn't really bring up you know Edgar Allan Poe into it so but you know that like you know Edgar Allan Poe and you probably know like I'm gonna talk about an author that everybody fucking knows like and so is Kristen (laughs) so but these are gonna know people but yeah it's gonna be more in depth like i did biography stuff about some of the names that you'll know so it's more in depth and it just makes you feel closer to their writing to know what they were going through when this was happening right and i did one where i think people know their works but don't know who actually did it ah okay you know like 
And maybe I'm wrong, but like I didn't. So there's that. Like I did one where it's a woman that kind of was known more as like a romance novelist. But now as we I've been looking back and rereading her work, everyone's like, oh, no, this bitch is dark. <laughs> so I'm excited to because uh, I don't know who you have. Right. You know who I have, but I don't know who you have. So I'm kind of excited yeah. to learn. Right. So it'll be interesting and it may not be the super long one, but we hope you get some information and some authors that you kind of want to dig into and research a little bit or at least learn about some of their works. And maybe if movies came out of it, go check them out. Yeah, definitely. All right. I'm going to start off with an author that most people probably know her name. It's a woman, which is amazing. And there has been there have been numerous films of her most iconic book. And in fact, there was a series a couple years ago that came out on Netflix. And this is Shirley Jackson. Jackson was born December 14, 1916 in San Francisco, California to Geraldine and Leslie Jackson. Her relationship with her mother was strained as her parents had married young and Geraldine had been disappointed when she immediately became pregnant with Shirley as she had been looking forward to spending time with her dashing husband. Jackson was often unable to fit in with other children and spent much of her time writing, much to her mother's distress. Geraldine made no attempt to hide her favoritism towards her son, Barry, who explained his mother's antagonism towards Shirley by saying, Geraldine was just a deeply conventional woman who was horrified by the idea that her daughter was not going to be deeply conventional. When Shirley was a teenager, her weight fluctuated, resulting in a lack of confidence that she would struggle with throughout her life. She then attended the nearby University of Rochester, where her parents felt they could maintain supervision over her studies. Jackson was unhappy in her classes there, took a year-long hiatus from her studies before transferring to Syracuse University, where she flourished both creatively and socially. Here she received her bachelor's degree in journalism. While a student at Syracuse, Jackson became involved with the campus literary magazine, through which she met her future husband, Stanley Ager Hyman. Terrible last name. <laughs> who later became a noted literary critic. After graduating, Jackson and Hyman married in 1940. They had four children, Lawrence, Joanne, Sarah, and Barry, who later achieved their own brand of literary fame as fictionalized versions of themselves in their mother's short stories. According to Jackson's biographers, her marriage was plagued by Hyman's infidelities, notably with his students, and she reluctantly agreed to his proposition of maintaining an open relationship. Hyman also controlled their finances, metting out portions of her earnings to her as he saw fit, despite the fact that after the success of The Lottery and later work, she earned far more than he did. Jackson's most famous story, The Lottery, first published in The New Yorker on June 26, 1948, established her reputation as a master of the horror tale. The story prompted over 300 letters from readers, many of them outraged at its conjuring of a dark aspect of human nature characterized by, as Jackson put it, bewilderment, speculation, and old-fashioned abuse. Jackson's fifth novel, The Haunting of Hill House, 1959, follows a group of individuals participating in a paranormal study at a reportedly haunted mansion. The novel, which had supernatural phenomenon with psychology, went on to become a critically esteemed example of the haunted house story and was described by Stephen King as one of the most important horror novels of the 20th century. 
By the time The Haunting of Hill House had been published, Jackson suffered numerous health problems. She was a heavy smoker, which resulted in chronic asthma, joint pain, exhaustion, and dizziness, leading to fainting spells, which were attributed to a heart problem. Near the end of her life, Jackson also saw a psychiatrist for severe anxiety, which had kept her housebound for extended periods of time, a problem worsened by a diagnosis of colitis, which made it physically difficult to travel even short distances from her home. To ease her anxiety and agoraphobia, the doctor prescribed barbiturates, which at the time were considered a safe, harmless drug. For many years, she also had periodic prescriptions for amphetamines for weight loss, which may have inadvertently aggravated her anxiety, leading to a cycle of prescription drug abuse using the two medications to counteract each other's effects. Any of these factors, or a combination of all of them, may have contributed to her declining health. In 1965, Jackson died in her sleep at her home in North Bennington at the age of 48. Her death was attributed to a coronary occlusion due to cardiac arrest. And I have an excerpt from The Haunting of Hill House, which I thought was kind of creepy. And this is what we have. Now we are going to have a new noise, Eleanor thought, listening to the inside of her head. It is changing. The pounding had stopped, as though it had proved ineffectual. And there was now a swift movement up and down the hall, as of an animal pacing back and forth with unbelievable impatience, watching first one door and then the other, alert for a movement inside. And there was again the little bubbling murmur which Eleanor remembered. Am I doing it? She wondered quickly. Is that me? And heard the tiny laughter beyond the door, mocking her. Well, you know, one of the things that I don't do often is read horror, because... With movies, you know you're going to be done in an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. But with books, it's like it's one all up to you, and two, these scenes can stay drawn out for as long as your mind draws them out. Right. It's not up to the screen time, and that's spooky. Definitely. That's especially like you're reading about a woman who's in her head and then you're in your head and yeah, it can be real spooky. Yeah. I, and that's, and no, thank you. (laughs) All right. So it was really important to me that I got a woman as well. Yeah. That's where I'm going to start. It's actually really hard to find. Talking about, uh, so there are horror novelists. Now we tried to stay with some of the more like older classic ones that have been around for a while. There are a ton of women doing stuff in horror right now that are active churning out novels. I'm not saying there aren't, but like people that are currently active or have had a one-off novel recently or current, you know, that's not what like, cause if we wanted to compile a list of good horror novels for you to write by women, it'd be hundreds of books long. Right. You no, know? these are f- influential horror novelist is what we're getting at here now this one was not inherently a horror novelist or a horror writer but I thought it was important because do you know anything about Daphne du Maurier I do don't look now correct do you know what else son of a don't worry about it we'll get there okay I'm sure you'll tell me all right (laughs) that's what we're here for so, Daphne du Maurier was born May 13th, 1907, and died April 19th, 1989, was an English author and playwright. 
She's classed as a romantic novelist, but her stories are described as moody, resonant, with overtones of the paranormal. And as she got into her later, she did some short stories. Her short stories are really what resonates with horror and terror. And that's where we actually got film from. Some of our better, like, more classic films in horror. So she was born in London to parents that had three daughters. She was actually born into an artistic family. She was born to an actor manager, Sir Gerald Dumarier, and actress Muriel Beaumont. Her mother was a maternal niece of journalist, author, and lecturer William Beaumont, and her grandfather was author and punch cartoonist George Dumarier, who created the character of Svengali in 1894 novel Tribly. Her elder sister also became a writer, and her younger sister was a painter, so all very artsy. So her family connections helped her career, obviously, because when you have that many people that are doing that much stuff, especially, you know, your father being Sir Gerald Dumarier. Right. You're going to, that that helps, you know. <laughs> Just a little bit. Yep. Her first novel was published in 1931, but her biggest novel her was called Rebecca. It was published in 1938. Ah, okay. Yep. Yep. And that is probably her most successful work. So it immediately sold about 3 million copies between 1938. Well, not immediately. I'm sorry. Between 1938 and 1965, it sold about 3 million copies. And it has never gone out of print and has been adapted for both stage and screen several times. In the U.S., she won the National Book Award for Favorite Novel of 1938 and was voted by members of the National Booksellers Association. In the U.K., it was listed at number 14 of the nation's best-loved best novels on the BBC's 2003 survey, The Big Read. She wrote things like The Scapegoat, The House on the Strand, and The King's General. And here's where it gets into our realm. So she has written some other novels that have been adapted for screen called Jamaica in Frenchman's Creek, Hungry Hill and my cousin, Rachel. Okay. So she wrote this kind of compilation of short stories called the apple tree, a short novel and several long stories. And she wrote a, it's another name. It goes by, is in in the United States it's called The Birds and Other Stories. Okay. So, so Alfred Hitchcock really liked her cuz yes. he also did Rebecca. Correct. Hmm. Interesting. Now, okay. She hated The Birds from 1963. <laughs> really? Yep, Alfred Hitchcock read her short story one time and adapted it to screen. And she was like, did he even fucking read it? Did he even fucking read it? And basically, Alfred Hitchcock was like, I mean, nah. <laughs> you know, like, he did. But he basically said, I'll read it and then I'll make it what I want to make it. Yeah. Is essentially what he said. So, and that's very Alfred Hitchcock. That's you know. very directors. Yeah, exactly. So, the second movie that we had made was, like Kristen said, Don't Look Now. And it was, you know, the supernatural tale about a married couple grieving the death of their daughter set in Venice, famous for a graphic sex scene between the film's leads. And that is part of her story. 
Oh, so, really? Yep. So her basically works as she got a little bit older, like I was saying, did get a little bit more. They have a lot of like paranormal tones. Like they definitely, that's, they horror really took root. And she was, she really liked Don't Look Now. So she wrote to the director that he had succeeded admirably, praising him for actually adding a more depth to unconscious thoughts that might have been her own. And she said, it's in the unconscious, of course, that the horror takes root. And as Thompson so accurately describes the source of her talent, she could take ordinary nervousness and build it. This is what the director said. I'm sorry. She could take ordinary nervousness and build it into dread. And so while she started out as a romance novelist, we got horror from her. We got the birds and we got don't look now, which we also have Hitchcock doing, like you said, Rebecca. Mm -hmm. So, and apparently in her, now I haven't read the Jamaica Inn also apparently has some interesting overtones there. And she hated, hated being categorized as a romance novelist. Really? Because her she's her novels very rarely have a happy ending and often <laughs> have very sinister overtones and shadows of the paranormal. So she has more in common with what she said were sensation novelists. So that's what she would rather be referred to as. And she admired sensation novelists. So she, they, she was described as a mistress of calculated irresolution in her obituary interesting she did not want to put her readers minds at rest and she wanted her riddles to persist she wanted the novels to continue to haunt us beyond their endings is what someone wrote about her so that's yeah i i just wanted to bring her up because she i mean the birds hitchcock and don't look now yeah just especially that quote at the end that you just said, don't look now. I've found, I think about a lot, just like randomly, it'll pop into my head, just the storyline and how sad it was at the end. Oh yeah. Like somebody that's going to make, like think like that and make something that macabre, basically like mm, romance novelist. Okay, sure. <laughs> right, sure right. Dan, you know, like <laughs> you had a great sex scene. Like that's all you got. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know about that one. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. The next one I'm going to do is my longest one because it is so in-depth and this person is, I don't know, so weird but awesome. And everyone will know this name and this is H.P. Lovecraft. Yes. And that's <laughs> why you really wanted to do this, wasn't it? What I originally wanted to do was I thought it might be cool if we could, like, read some of these stories on here for you and kind of creep you guys out. But just with copyright issues and everything, it's just not working out great. But, yeah, this was part of it because I didn't know anything about H.P. Lovecraft. And Connor, I don't know, a few months ago, he was like, have you ever looked into H.P. Lovecraft's life? Because it is fucked up. And I did. And I was like, oh, my God, we should talk about this because it is fucked up. Hmm. Interesting. All right, let's go. <laughs> Howard Phillips Lovecraft was born in Providence, Rhode Island on August 20th, 1890, and was the only child to Susie and Winfield Lovecraft. 
In April 1893, after a psychotic episode in a Chicago hotel, Winfield was committed to Butler Hospital in Providence. Though it's not clear who reported Winfield's prior behavior to the hospital, medical records indicate that he had been, quote-unquote, doing and saying strange things at times, for a year before his commitment. Winfield spent five years in Butler before dying in 1898. His death certificate listed the cause of death as general paresis, a term synonymous with late-stage syphilis. Throughout his life, Lovecraft maintained that his father fell into a paralytic state due to, insomnia, due to insomnia and being overworked, and remained that way until his death. It is not known whether Lovecraft was simply kept ignorant of his father's illness, or whether his later remarks were intentionally misleading. After his father's hospitalization, Lovecraft resided in the family home with his mother, his maternal aunts, Lillian and Annie, and his maternal grandparents, Whipple and Roby. According to the accounts of family friends, Susie, dot Susie doted on the young Lovecraft to a fault, pampering him and never letting him out of her sight. Lovecraft later recollected that after his father's illness, his mother was permanently stricken with grief. Whipple became a father figure to Lovecraft in this time. Lovecraft, noting that his grandfather came, became the center of my entire universe. Whipple, who traveled often on business, maintained correspondence by letter with the young Lovecraft, who, by the age of three, was already proficient at reading and writing. He encouraged the young Lovecraft to have an appreciation of literature, especially classical literature and English poetry. In his old age, he helped raise the young H.P. Lovecraft and educated him not only in the classics, but also in original weird tales of winged horrors and deep, low-moaning sounds, which he created for his grandchild's entertainment. While there is no indication that Lovecraft was particularly close to his grandmother, Roby, her death in 1896 had a profound effect. By his own account, it sent his family into a gloom from which it never fully recovered. His mother's and aunt's wearing of black mourning dresses terrified him, and it is at this time that Lovecraft, approximately five and a half years old, started having nightmares that would inform his later writing. Specifically, he began to have recurring nightmares of beings he termed night gaunts. Their appearance he credited to the influence of Doré's illustrations, which would whirl me through space at a sickening rate of speed, the while fretting and impelling me with their detestable tridents. Thirty years later, night gaunts would appear in Lovecraft's writing. Lovecraft has said that as a child, he was enamored of the Roman pantheon of gods, accepting them as genuine expressions of divinity and foregoing his Christian upbringing. He recalled at five years old, being told Santa Claus did not exist, and retorting by asking why God is not equally a myth. At age of eight, he took a keen interest in the sciences, particularly astronomy and chemistry. He also examined the anatomy books available to him in the family library, learning the specifics of human reproduction that had yet to be explained to him and found that it virtually killed my interest in the subject. By 1900, Whipple's various business concerns were suffering a downturn and slowly reducing his family's wealth. He was forced to let his family's hired servants go, leaving Lovecraft, Whipple, and Susie, being the only unmarried sister, alone in the family home. In the spring of 1904, Whipple's largest business venture suffered a catastrophic failure. Within months, he died due to a stroke at age 70. After Whipple's death, Susie was unable to support the upkeep of the expensive home and on what remained of the Phillips estate. Later that year, she was, she was forced to move herself and her son to a small duplex. Lovecraft has called this time one of the darkest of his life, remarking in a 1934 letter that he saw no point in living anymore. 
In fall of the same year, he started high school. Much like his earlier school years, Lovecraft was at times removed from school for long periods for what he termed near breakdowns. He did say, though, that while having some conflicts with teachers, he enjoyed high school, becoming close with a small circle of friends, and performed well academically, excelling in particular at chemistry and physics. It was in 1908, prior to his high school graduation, that Lovecraft suffered another health crisis of some sort, though the instance was seemingly more severe than any prior. The exact circumstances and causes remain unknown. The only direct records are Lovecraft's own later correspondence, wherein he described it variously as a nervous collapse and a sort of breakdown, in one letter blaming it on the stress of high school despite his enjoying it. In another letter concerning the events of 1908, he notes, I was and am prey to intense headaches, insomnia, and general nervous weakness, which prevents my continuous application to anything. In winter of 1918-1919, Susie, exhibiting symptoms of a nervous breakdown of some sort, went to live with her elder sister Lillian. It is unclear what Susie may have been suffering from. I mean, if her husband had syphilis, sounds like she did too. No kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Neighbor and friend of Clara Hess interviewed in 1948 recalled instances of Susie describing weird and fantastic creatures that rushed out from behind buildings and from corners at dark. Whatever the causes, in March 1919, they resulted in Susie being committed to Butler Hospital, like her husband before her. Lovecraft's immediate reaction to Susie's commitment was visceral, writing to Kleiner that existence seems of little value, and that he wished it might terminate. Lovecraft periodically visited Susie and walked the large grounds with her. Late 1919 saw Lovecraft becoming more outgoing. After a period of isolation, he began joining friends in trips to writer gatherings. In early 1920, at an amateur writer convention, he met Frank Belknap Long, who would end up being Lovecraft's most influential and closest confidant for the rest of his life. This period also proved to be the most prolific of Lovecraft's short story career. It was later in 1920 that Lovecraft began publishing the earliest stories that fit into the Cthulhu mythos. On May 24, 1921, Susie died in Butler Hospital due to complications from a gallbladder surgery five days earlier. Lovecraft's initial reaction, expressed in a letter nine days after Susie's death, was that of an extreme nervous shock that crippled him physically and emotionally, again remarking that he found no reason he should continue living. Despite Lovecraft's reaction, he continued to attend amateur journalist conventions. It was at one such convention in July that Lovecraft met Sonia Green, Lovecraft and Green married on March 3, 1924, and relocated to her Brooklyn apartment at Flatbush Avenue. She thought he needed to leave Providence to flourish and was willing to support him financially. Not long after their marriage, Green lost her business and her assets disappeared in a bank failure. She also became ill. Lovecraft made efforts to support his wife through regular jobs, but his lack of previous work experience meant he lacked proven marketable skills. Lovecraft was never able to provide for even basic expenses by selling stories and doing paid literary work for others. He lived frugally, subsisting on an inheritance that was nearly depleted by the time he died. He sometimes went without food to be able to pay the cost of mailing letters. Due to his fear of doctors, Lovecraft was not examined until a mere month before his death. After seeing a doctor, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer of the small intestine. He remained hospitalized until he died. He lived in constant pain until his death on March 15, 1937, in Providence. In accordance with his lifelong scientific curiosity, 
He kept a diary of his illness until he was physically incapable of holding a pen. Mm. And then I have an excerpt from the festival. At this horror, I sank nearly to the likened earth, transfixed with a dread, not of this nor any world, but only of the mad spaces between the stars. Out of the unimaginable blackness beyond the gangrenous glare of that cold flame, out of the Tartarin leagues through which the oily river roiled, uncanny, unheard, and unsuspected, there flocked rhythmically a horde of tame, trained, hybrid-winged things that no sound eye could ever wholly grasp, or sound brain ever wholly remember. They were not altogether crows, nor moles, nor buzzards, nor ants, nor vampire bats nor decomposed human beings, but something I cannot and must not recall. You know, the whole not being able to, this is kind of fucked up, but you know, his life's kind of... Super fucked up? Yeah, but that just reminded me, like, you know, not being so sick, you can't hold a pin, like, Mm -hmm. like, thinking about that kind of pain, like, I... like that's how bad my dad got like that shit is real like yeah being in that much pain for like that long and like his whole like death leading up to I mean for being like a you know giving us so much like you know in horror like in his whole life essentially being a horror I mean I guess it's fitting but it's also like yeah yeah it's unfortunate you know it's so sad like I mean his mom had money and lost it. His grandparents had money and lost it. He ends up with a wife who has money and loses it. It's almost like, are you the bad luck at this point? Yeah, like the, the X so factor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Megan, the next one that I have, his name is Robert Block. Do you know who that is? It sounds vaguely familiar. Okay. Robert, I'm going to hold off on what he specifically what he's best known for until I get there because I think I don't know it's an exciting reveal (laughs) okay (laughs) Robert Block was an American fiction writer primarily of crime horror fantasy and sci-fi from Milwaukee Wisconsin his fondness for a pun is evident in the titles of his story collections such as tales in a jugular vein such stuff as screams are made of and out of the mouths of graves (laughs) (laughs) Block wrote hundreds of short stories over and over 30 novels. He was one of the youngest members of the Lovecraft Circle and began his professional writing career immediately after graduation, age 17. He was a protege that of matched H- up. Huh? Not matched up. I did Lovecraft now. Yep, yep. Protege. He was a protege of H.P. Lovecraft, who was the first to seriously encourage his talent. See? You see how I did that oh, segue? Oh, mm-hmm. I see, I see. Mm-hmm. Yep. However, while Block started his career by emulating Lovecraft and his brand of cosmic horror, he later specialized in crime and horror stories dealing with more a psychological approach. Block was a contributor to pulp magazine such as Weird Tales in his early career and was also a prolific screenwriter and major contributor to science fiction fanzines and fandom in general. He won the Hugo Award for his story That Hellbound Train, the Bram Stoker Award, and the World Fantasy Award. He served as term president for Mystery Writers of America in 1970 and was a member of the Organization of the Science Fiction Writers of America, the Writers Guild of America, the Academy of Motion Picture Artists and Sciences, and the Count Dracula Society. Goddamn. I know. In 2008, the Library of America selected Block's essay, The Shambles of Ed Gein, 
1962, for inclusion in its two-century retrospective of American true crime. His favorites among his own novels were The Kidnapper, The Star Stalker, Psycho, Night World, and Strange Eons. So, Got it. Okay. Yeah. Hence the Ed Gein thing. Okay. And then number three there, you know. His work has been extensively adapted into films, television production, comics, and audiobooks. He was born in Chicago, the son of Ray Block, a bank cashier, and his wife, Stella Loeb, a social worker, both of German-Jewish descent. Block's family moved to Maywood, a Chicago suburb, when he was five, and he lived there until he was ten. In 1925, at eight years of age, living in Maywood, he attended a screening of Lon Chaney Sr. films, The Phantom of the Opera. The scene of Chaney removing his mask terrified him. It scared the living hell out of me, and I ran all the way home to enjoy the first of about two years of recurrent nightmares, he said. It also sparked his interest in horror. We all have that moment, right? <laughs> right. That's like some people are like never want to see horror again, and then some people just never leave. Right. You know? Like that just gave me life. Now I appreciate the world again uh -huh. more. Block was a precocious child and found himself in fourth grade when he was eight years old. He also obtained a pass into the adult section of the public library, which was a big deal. And he considered himself a budding artist and worked in pencil sketching and watercolors. But myopia, so nearsightedness, and adolescence seemed to affect his career as an artist. He had passion for German-made lead toy soldiers and silent film. In 1929, his father lost his bank job and the family moved to Milwaukee, where Stella worked for the Milwaukee Jewish Settlement House. And Robert attended Washington, then Lincoln High School, where he met his friend Harold Gower. Gower was editor of The Quill, Lincoln's literary magazine, and accepted Block's first publication short story, a horror story titled The Thing. The thing of the title was death. So not the same thing. It's not that one. <laughs> Different, different Both thing. Block and Gower graduated from Lincoln in 1934 during the height of the Great Depression. Block was involved in the drama department. So during the 1930s, he was an avid reader of pulp magazine Weird Tales, which he had discovered at the age of 1927, in the Chicago Northwest Railroad Depot where his parents and Aunt Lil, his aunt, offered to buy him any magazine he wanted, and he picked Weird Tales, the August 1927 issue, off the newsstand over their shocked protests. But they had already promised, so he got it. He began reading the magazine with the first installment of Otis Alberts Klein's The Bride of Osiris, which dealt with a secret Egyptian city called Cartonay. Cartoner? Carnator? You're supposed to know this, Kristen. It's Egyptian. You said it was a non-real city. I, know, I don't kidding. know it. <laughs> Located between Block's birth city of Chicago, the Depression came in the early 1930s. He later recalled in accepting the Lifetime Achievement Award at the First World Fantasy Convention in 1975 how times were very hard. Weird tales cost 25 cents in a day where most pulp magazines cost a dime. I remember that meant a lot to me. He went on to relate how he would get up very early on the last day of the month with 25 cents saved from his monthly allowance of $1 and would run all the way to a combination tobacco magazine store to buy the new Weird Tales issue, sometimes smuggling it home under his coat if the cover was a particularly risque cover. His parents were not impressed with Hugh Doak's Rankin's sexy cover for the magazine. When the Block family moved to Milwaukee in 1928, young Block gradually abandoned his interest. But by the time he had entered high school, he returned to Weird Tales during 
convalescence from the flu. H.P. Lovecraft, a frequent contributor to the magazine, became one of his favorite writers. The first of Lovecraft's stories he had read was Pickman's Model and Weird Tales from October 1927. Block wrote, in high school, I was forced to squirm my way through works of Oliver Wendell's Oliver Wendell Holmes, James Lowell, and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. In Pickman's Model, the ghouls ate all three. Now that I decided that was poetic justice. As a teenager, Block wrote a fan letter to Lovecraft in 1933, asking where he could find copies of earlier stories of Lovecraft's that Block had missed. Lovecraft lent them to him. Oh, my God. Wow. (laughs) I would pass out. I know, right? (laughs) Lovecraft also gave Block advice on his early fiction writing efforts, asking whether Block had written any weird work, and if so, whether he might see samples of it. Oh, my God. Like a friggin' dream. (laughs) Yeah. Block took up Lovecraft's offer in late April 1933, sending him two short stories, The Gallows and another work of unknown title. Lovecraft also suggested Block write to other members of the Lovecraft Circle, including August Derleth, Robert H. Barlow, Clark Ashton Smith, Donald Wandre, Fark, Fark, Frank Belknap, <laughs> Long, Henry S. Whitehead, E. Hoffman Price, and J. Vernon Shea. Block's first completed tales were Lilies, The Laughter of a Young Ghoul, and The Black Lotus. Block submitted these to Weird Tales editor Farnsworth Wright, summarily rejected them however block successfully placed the lilies in the semi-professional magazine marvel tales winter 1934 and black lotus block later commented i figured i'd better do something different or i'd end up a florist (laughs) he graduated in 1934 and he wrote a story which he promptly six weeks later sold to weird tales Block's first publication of Weird Tales was a letter criticizing the Conan stories of Robert E. Howard. His first professional sales at the age of 17, July 1934, to Weird Tales were the short stories The Feast in the Abbey and The Secret in the Tomb. Appeared in the 1935 issue, which actually went on sale November 1st, 1934. The Secret in the Tomb appeared in the May 1935 Weird Tales. Lovecraft's death in 1937 deeply affected Block, who was then only 20 years old. He recalled part of me died with him, not only because he was not a god, he was mortal, that is true, but because he had so little recognition in his own lifetime. There were no novels or collections published, no great realization, even here in Providence, of what was lost. Elsewhere, he wrote, The news of his fate came to me as a shattering blow, all the more so because the world at large ignored his passing. Only my parents and a few correspondents seemed to sense my shock and my feeling that a part of me had died with him. After Lovecraft's death in 1937, Block continued writing for Weird Tales, where he became one of its most popular authors. He also began contributing to other pulps, such as science fiction magazine Amazing Stories. Block broadened his scope of his fiction. His horror themes included voodoo, the Conte cruel, demonic possession, and black magic. Block visited Henry Kuttner in California in 1937. Block's first science fiction story, The Secret of the Observatory, was published in Amazing Stories in August of 1938. Block won the Hugo Award for Best Short Story, The Hellbound Train, in 1959, the same year that his sixth novel, Psycho, was published. Block had written an earlier short story involving disassociative identity disorder, previously known as multiple personality disorder, The Real Bad Friend, which appeared in February 1959, Mike Shane Mystery Magazine, that foreshadowed the 1959 novel Psycho. However, Psycho 
also had thematic links to the story Lucy Comes to Stay, another short story he wrote. Also in 1959, Block delivered a lecture titled Imagination and Modern Social Criticism at the University of Chicago. This was reprinted in the critical volume The Science Fiction Novel. His story The Hungry Eye appeared in Fantasy a magazine called Fantasy. This was also the year in which, despite having graduated from painting watercolors to oils, he gave up painting completely. Norman Bates, the main character in Psycho, was loosely based on two people. First was real-life serial killer, Ed Gain, about whom Block later wrote a fictionalized account, The Shambles of Ed Gain. The story can be found in Crimes and Punishment, The Lost Block, Volume 3. Second, it has been indicated by several people, including Noel Carter, wife of Lynn Carter, and Chris Steinbrunner, as well as an allegedly by Block himself, that Norman Bates was partly based on Calvin Beck, publisher of Castle of Frankenstein. Block's basing of the character of Norman Bates on the serial killer is discussed in the documentary Ed Gain, The Ghoul of Plainfield, which can be found on disc two of the DVD release of the remake of The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. However, Block also commented that it was in the situation itself, a mass murderer living undetected and unsuspected in a typical town in middle America, rather than the serial killer himself who sparked Block's storyline. He writes, thus the real-life murderer was not the role model for my character, Norman Bates. Ed didn't own or operate a motel. Ed didn't kill anyone in the shower. Ed wasn't into taxidermy. Ed didn't stuff his mother, keep her body in the house, dress into a drag outfit, or adopt an alternative personality. These were the functions and characteristics of Norman Bates, and Norman Bates didn't exist until I made him up. Out of my own imagination, I add, which is probably the reason so few offer to take showers with me. <laughs> Though Block had little involvement with the film version of the novel, which was directed by Alfred Hitchcock from an adapted screenplay by Joseph Stefano, he was to become most... He was he was to become most famous as its author. Block was awarded a special Mystery Writers of America scroll for the novel in 1961. The novel is one of the first examples at full length of Block's use of modern urban horror relying on the horrors of interior psychology rather than the supernatural, which is true and not something that really gets talked about as far as Psycho goes a ton. Like, we talk a lot about Psycho, but that's, I mean, we and we have talked about it a little bit, but like, you know, the like into like that sense the interior psychology rather than the supernatural that Mm -hmm. that's true yes by the mid-1940s i had pretty well mined the vein of ordinary supernatural themes until it became varicose block explained to douglas e winter in an interview i realized as a result of what went on during world war ii and end end of reading the more widely disseminated world work in psychology that a real horror is not in the shadows but in that twisted little world inside our own skulls While Block was not the first horror writer to utilize a psychological approach, it originates in the works of Edgar Allan Poe, Block's psychological approach in modern times was comparatively unique. He was active until the 1990s. He did comic adaptations, audio adaptations. He worked in Star Wars. I mean, he wrote so many novels. He wrote so many short stories. I, I mean, this guy, like, you can scroll and scroll and scroll and he, from 19, in film alone, from 1960 up until 1998, has just a ton of, you know, contributions to his name. And you don't really hear about the novelist that wrote Psycho, you know? Mm-hmm. You hear about Alfred Hitchcock. Right. But it didn't come from Alfred, Hitch- Alfred Hitchcock. Right. You know? 
So he did a lot of TV and film writing. He penned three scripts for the original Star Trek series. The Skull, The House of Dripped Blood, Torture Gardens. He's kind of a effect up individual. Now, <laughs> before we move on, I would like to read the shower murder scene from the novel. Ooh, okay. Then she did see it there. Just a face peering through the curtains, hanging in midair like a mask. A head, scarf concealed, the hair and the glassy eyes staring inhumanely. But it wasn't a mask, it couldn't be. The skin had been powdered, dead, white, and two hectic spots of rogue centered on the cheekbones. It wasn't a mask. It was the face of a crazy old woman. Mary started to scream, and then the curtains parted further and a hand appeared, holding a butcher's knife. It was the knife that, a moment later, cut off her scream and her head. Oh my god! Yeah. I love it. That was terrifying. Yeah. And if you look him up, he's got like the sweetest face. (laughs) I need to read that freaking book. Like if he was your grandfather, like the sweetest man looking face ever. Robert Block, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Oops. Oh yeah, he does look pretty sweet, doesn't Aww. he? <laughs> With him holding his little <laughs> little yeah. ward. All right, now to somebody who's not so sweet. Mm. No, he's fine, but he also the authors that I picked, man, they had fucked up lives. Clive Barker. Mm. Barker was born in Liverpool, the son of Joan and Leonard Barker. When he was three years old, Barker witnessed the French skydiver Leo Valentin plummet to his death during a performance at an air show in Liverpool. Jesus Christ. Barker would later allude to Valentin in many of his stories. Barker is an author of horror fantasy. He began writing horror early in his career, mostly in the form of short stories. When Books of Blood were first published in the United States in paperback, Stephen King was quoted on the book covers, I have seen the future of horror and his name is Clive Barker. During his early years as a writer, he would occasionally work as a male prostitute when his writing didn't prove sufficient income. Which makes so much more sense with Hellraiser. Barker said in a December 2008 online interview that he had polyps in his throat, which were so severe that a doctor told him he was taking in 10% of the air he was supposed to have been getting. He has had two surgeries to remove them and believes his resultant voice is an improvement over how it was prior to the surgeries. He said he did not have cancer and has given up cigars. In 2012, Barker went into a coma for several days after having contracted toxic shock syndrome, triggered by a visit to the dentist, which unloaded a spillage of poisonous bacteria into his bloodstream, almost claiming his life. Realizing he might have just a short time left to live, he decided to put his personal concerns about the world and society in the upcoming novel Deep Hill, which he then thought could be his final book. As of 2015, he is a member of the Board of Advisors for the Hollywood Horror Museum. While appearing on the radio call-in show Loveline on August 20th, 1996, Barker stated that during his teens, he had several relationships with older women, but came to identify himself as homosexual by 18 or 19 years old. His relationship with John Gregson lasted from 75 to 86. He later spent 13 years with photographer David Armstrong, described as his husband in the introduction to Cold Heart Canyon. They separated in 2009. Barker wrote the screenplays for Underworld and Rawhead Rex, both directed by George Pavlo. 
Displeased by how his material was handled, he moved to directing with Hellraiser in 1987, based on the novella The Hellbound Heart. And then here is an excerpt from The Hellbound Heart. But everything slipped through his fingers sooner or later, and with time he began to wonder whether it was circumstance that denied him a good hold on his earnings, or whether he simply didn't care enough to keep what he had. The train of thought once begun was a runaway. Everywhere, in the wreckage around him, he found evidence to support the same bitter thesis, that he had encountered nothing in his life, no person, no state of mind or body he wanted sufficiently to suffer even passing discomfort for. A downward spiral began. He spent three months in a wash of depression and self-pity that bordered on suicidal. But even that solution was denied him by his newfound nihilism. If nothing was worth living for, it followed, didn't it? That there was nothing worth dying for either. Mm, Yikes, that's dark. (laughs) (laughs) It is dark. He's still alive. Yes, he is is still alive. And wow, like no wonder Hellraiser is so crazy. That poor guy had it, had a tough life. I have one more author I really want to talk about and then like just two more brief series I want to discuss, which will be short. But so this last author that I have here, his name is Richard Matheson. Do you know anything about Richard Matheson? Off the top of your head. That does not sound familiar. Ooh, goody. Okay. Oh, I'm excited. Okay. I'm so glad I picked these last two here because you do know Richard Matheson. You just don't know Richard Matheson. (laughs) Okay. Richard Matheson, born February 20th, 1926, passed away June 23rd, 2013, was an American author and screenwriter primarily in fantasy, horror, and science fiction genres. All right, Kristen. He has done some of our favorite movies starting from the 50s decade all the way to one in the 90s that you love. Okay. So all across the board here, okay? Okay, I'm excited. Okay, I can, I'm so excited. It's like, I don't, I, I want to like build suspense, but also I have to start discussing his works pretty much right off the bat. So I can't like build that much suspense, you know? Okay. Okay. I ha- I don't think anybody's out there is having as much fun with this as we are. So. <laughs> right. We're like, ooh, guess what he wrote? Okay. So he's best known for I Am Legend. So okay. like the Will Smith film, uh-huh. that he wrote that which was actually written in 1954, a science fiction horror novel. And that has been adapted for the screen three times, which was first actually the last man on earth. With Vincent Price. Correct. Yep. Omega man. mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. So the other two adaptations are the Omega man and I am legend with Will Smith. And he Mm -hmm. wrote 16 television episodes of twilight zone. Oh my God. Including the popular nightmare at 20,000 feet. And Steel, as well as several adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe stories for the American International Pictures, House of Usher, The Pit and the Pendulum, Tales of Terror, and The Raven. Of course, they weren't like, you know, major, major films, but, you know. Yeah. It'd be like that. And he adapted (laughs) his 1971 short story, Duel, as a screenplay directed by Steven Spielberg for the television film Duel. Oh, my God. I've been wanting to watch that recently. Okay. Yeah. All right. So... Okay, let's get into it, and then I'll tell you what else he did. Let's get into it. Oh my god. Okay, there's more. All right, there's more. Ready? I am Legend is the main one, but is like the big, the big one that everyone yeah. knows. But what I'm excited right. to tell you about is the one from the 50s, because okay, that's we love that one. We love it. Okay. Matheson was born in Allendale, New Jersey, to Norwegian immigrants Bertolf and Fanny Matheson. They divorced when he was eight, and he was raised in Brooklyn, New York, by his mother. 
We love that. Single moms, go ahead. <laughs> His early writing influences were the film Dracula, novels by Kenneth Roberts, and a poem which he read in the newspaper, The Brooklyn Eagle, where he published his first short story at age eight. He entered Brooklyn Technical High School in 1939, graduated in 1943, and served in the Army in Europe during World War II. This formed the basis for the 1960 novel, The Beardless Warriors. He attended the Missouri School of Journalism at the University of Missouri, earning his BA in 1949, and then moved to California. So in the 1950s and 1960s, his first written novel, Hunger and Thirst, was ignored for decades before eventually being published in 2010. But his short story, Born of Man and Woman, was published in... Now, remember, his first novel, he had success for years after he wrote his first novel. He died in 2013, and it wasn't published till 2010. Oh, my God. Yeah. In summer 1950, the New Quarterly's third issue, and he published... He was published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, his short story, Born of Man and Woman. And this is when he started gaining attention. It is the tale of a monstrous child chained by his parents in the cellar, cast as the creature's diary in non-idiomatic English. Later that year, he placed stories in the first and third numbers of Galaxy Science Fiction, a new monthly. His first anthology of work was published in 1954. Between 1950 and 1971, he produced dozens of stories, frequently blending elements of sci-fi, horror, and fantasy. He was a member of Southern California Sorcerers in 1950s and 60s, which included Ray Bradbury, George Clayton Johnson, William F. Nolan, Jerry Soule, and several other notable authors. Several of his stories, including Third from the Sun, Deadline, and Button Button, are simple sketches with twist endings. Others, like Trespass, Being, and Mute, explore their characters' dilemmas over 20 or 30 pages. He dabbles in satirical humor, horror, but he also gets much, much darker. Many of his dabbling in paranoia, and then in between, he even talks about scientists and superheroes. So he really goes all across the board here. But... Matheson's one of his very first ones that take off one of his other early novels The Shrinking Man was adopted in 1957 as The Incredible Shrinking Man yeah yep and was obviously that took off so Matheson wrote screenplays obviously for I talked about The Twilight Zone and then Later, in the 70s and 80s, he earned an Edgar Award for Mystery Writers of America for Teleplay for the Night Stalker, one of two TV movies written by Matheson and directed by Dan Curtis. The other was The Night Strangler, which preceded the TV series The Night Stalker. Matheson worked extensively with Curtis. The 1977 movie Dead of Night features three stories written by the screen by Matheson. And three of his short stories were filmed together as Trilogy of Terror in 1975, including Prey, with its famous Zuni warrior fetish doll. (laughs) The Zuni fetish doll reappeared in the final segment of the belated sequel to the first movie, Trilogy of Terror 2. Which, I've heard about that, but I've never looked into it, but I do. Oh, I've seen Trilogy of Terror. It's, It's... It's a something. Can't, it's campy and pretty decent. It scared the crap out of my mom when she was younger, so she made me watch it. So we're getting into the 1990s here. Now, we're excited about The Incredible Shrinking Man, right? Yes. Yes. Here's where I think this might actually surprise you a little bit. Mathism published four Western novels in this decade, which is kind of weird. Okay, you know, coming from that. But he also wrote several movies. 
the offbeat comedy and box office flop Loose Cannons, the biopic The Dreamer of Oz, a segment of Rod Sterling's Lost Classics and segments The Trilogy of Terror 2, short stories continued to flow and saw the adaptations by other hands of two more of his novels for big screen. What Dreams May Come and... I love that movie. And... Robin Williams. A Stir of Echoes. (laughs) Kevin Bacon. Yep. Okay. (laughs) In 1999, Matheson published a nonfiction work, The Path, inspired by his interest in psychic phenomena. He continued into the 21st century. Many previous unpublished novels by Matheson appeared late in his career, as did various collections of his work and previous unpublished screenplays. So, most notably, I Am Legend. I mean, you know, the doll, we, that doesn't really mean much to me, but it does to a lot of people, so I'll throw that in there. <laughs> a trilogy of terror? Yes. Yeah. And then I Am Legend, The Incredible Shrinking Man, and Star of Echoes, and obviously What Dreams May Come. Oh my god. Have you seen What Dreams May Come? It's been a really long time. Oh I have, god, but... I it, love that movie so much. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if I just need a cry fest, it's What Dreams May Come. <laughs> now, I have two quotes from him. One of them is from Dreams May, from What Dreams May Come, and then one of them is from The Thing, and these are actually show how dark... Richard Matheson is because they're very rough. (laughs) So the first one is from what dreams may come. They think of suicide as a quick route to oblivion and escape far from it. It merely alters a person from one form to another. Nothing can destroy the spirit. Suicide only precipitates a darker continuation of the same conditions from which escape was sought a condition under circumstances so much more painful. And then this next one We've forgotten much. How to struggle, how to rise to dizzy heights and sink to unparalleled depths. We no longer aspire to anything. Even the finer shades of despair are lost to us. We've ceased to be runners. We plod from structure to conveyance to employment and back again. We live within the boundaries that science has determined for us. The measuring stick is short and sweet. The full gamut of life is a brief, shadowy continuum that runs from gray to more gray. The rainbow is bleached. We hardly know how to doubt anymore. And that is from The Thing. Damn. Yeah. Right? (laughs) All right. So the last two things I want to talk about are actually for those of you with kiddos out there that might be interested in like horror or that you kind of want to introduce to horror. Obviously my first recommendation is going to be Coraline. If you have someone that's like into chapter books already, I mean, I guess these are chapter books, but that one's kind of a more like older. I actually read that like in high school, but Coraline didn't come out until 2009. So I was already like a junior. So, but you can read that younger. Now, obviously RL Stein. Mm-hmm. So, absolutely. Yeah. I'm not really going to go in. I'm not going to do a whole nother like bio, you know, and go through all that. But R.L. Stein wrote the Goosebumps series. And if you don't fucking know. And Fear Street. And Fear Street. I read the Goosebumps books. I read Fear Street. That's so funny. (laughs) Yeah. I never read the Goosebumps, except for the mummy ones, because I love Egypt. That was it. So what Fear Street, do you remember any of them really getting to you when you were a kid? The Fear Street books? Yeah. Definitely. There is... So I remember the wrong number. I definitely remember that when there it's these two girls and they're like just hanging out at a house and they're making prank phone calls and then they end up their neighbor like killed somebody and they end up finding all that. That was fucking creepy. And then the one that I always end up wanting to reread this book periodically, it's called Trapped. 
And that one really scared me. It was basically the kids are in like breakfast club type thing, like they're doing detention on a weekend and they end up going down into the catacombs and then they get lost down there. And it's like Paris sized catacombs, like it's huge and they get really fucking lost down there and end up dying and shit. I have like, I mean, and these books can get kind of like they're fun and good for kids, but they can get kind of dark. Like, yes, I loved it. Like, I know that I was a Goosebumps kid. You were a Fear Street kid, but <laughs> like there was a couple Goosebumps books. I didn't read all of them. I wasn't like an avid Goosebumps reader, but I did get my hands on a couple of them. And there was one that I have never forgotten about. Actually, there are a couple, One, but one of them that sticks out is called It Came From Beneath the Sink. Okay. And the the fucking cover art when I was a kid, like it caught oh, my eye. The cover art on Goosebumps, so good. Oh, yeah. The cover art when I was a kid, it's like this kitchen sink that's open and these like horrifying eyes just staring out. This kid finds like this sponge and it's actually like a monster, like a living, breathing thing, but it looks like a sponge, but it like, Ew. it's a monster. Yeah. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. And then there's one that's kind of like indicative of Goosebumps and then it's like, God, what's it called? It's like the cover art is like this goo on. Oh, here it is. Monster blood. That's what it's called. It's ah, called monster monster blood. blood. Yep. But my favorite one is I, I don't remember which one it was, but Goosebumps did this entire series that were game books. So you could choose your own path in the book. I love choose your own adventure ones. Yes. So and it was scary because it's like if you go this way, it, you could turn and you could be dead. Mm-hmm. you know but if you go this way it could be like okay so now I think I was in a carnival one escape from the carnival but there's one called TikTok you're dead trapped in batwing hall the deadly experiment and these are all from like the mid 90s and it blew my mind and it still kind of does how people can be smart enough to put like that much work into like turn to page whatever and then you know turn to page 30 for this answer and then yes. turn to page 90 for this one and those were so fun. So definitely the Goosebumps series, obviously. Another one that I think that some people will remember, and I've talked about these a little bit. There was a series when I was a kid. These are for a little bit younger crowd. They're called the Bailey School Kids books. And there are they're short chapter books, like very easy to digest chapter books. But if you have a kid that's like really into like paranormal stuff, but still very young, so very benign things, there are like 81 of these books, I think. And they are so cute. The first one's called Vampires Don't Wear Polka Dots. And it's these kids that they are coming across these just normal type people, these normal jobs. And there's four friends and they're like, no that's a fucking vampire or like you're a fucking monster like I'm looking at the list right now and I'm trying to remember some of the ones werewolves don't go to summer camp so they went to a summer camp and they thought that their camp counselor was turning into a werewolf at night and they had to I totally forgot about these till I'm looking at the covers did you do you remember them I don't remember reading any of them, but they did look good like I wanted to. Yeah, like I would I would definitely like either get these for friends' kids or like if I have kids, read them to them. There was one about Cyclops doesn't roller skate. I remember that one. Mermaids don't run track. Ghouls don't scoop ice cream. Phantoms don't drive sports cars. Sports cars, excuse me. Ghosts don't ride wild horses. 
Dracula doesn't play kickball, you know, dragons don't throw snowballs. It's just, you know, really, and they have this whole like holiday specials, books, swamp monsters don't chase wild turkeys for Thanksgiving, aliens don't carve jack-o'-lanterns, you know, like they're, they're all about monsters and the paranormal and stuff like that. And these kids trying to figure out how to, it's kind of like Scooby-Doo. Mm-hmm. So I, those are just two that I, you know, there are some more obviously for kids, but those were like the two main ones that really got me into like the horror realm when I was a kid, you know? Yeah, definitely. I, I've been looking cause I, I want babies and I've been looking recently to find like spooky, like board books, like baby books. And there actually are some cool ones that I've found on Amazon lately. If you're looking for something even younger, they have like Yeti baby and Bigfoot baby and stuff like that, where it's, there's a pumpkin one, there's aliens. There's so many cool things for, you know, alt people or goth parents now, because that's going to be me. Like my kids are going to be reading some weird fucking shit. It's just going to happen. And then as more of like a teenager, the other thing that got me into horror was mostly Amelia Atwater Rose. I don't know if anybody knows that author. She does a lot of vampire stuff, but she also does shapeshifters and things like that. It's more of like a middle school, high school type author, but that's what really got me into vampires was her Shattered Mirror. I just fell in love with that book. I didn't, like, I was into a lot of the, when I was in high school, like a lot of the series that were big, like, you know, I was in high school when I think the Hunger Games started coming uh, I might have been early college. I don't remember. I think I was in high school. I don't, I don't. But like, you know, I was also having to read a fuck ton for like college prep and stuff. T- high school takes away fun reading. Right. That sucks. Let Middle kids read for fun. Time. Stop squashing the fun of reading. Right. Like I get it. But also stop. <laughs> I tried to read the True Blood series, the Sookie Stackhouse novels. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't get very far in those, but really, oh my god, I love them so much. I love Charlene Harris. I love Laurel K. Hamilton. These are all big vampire authors. Yeah, obviously, and another female author in the horror space is Anne Rice. Anne Rice, I don't. I struggle with Anne Rice. She's a little wordy for me. Yeah, like Stephen King. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she's like the counterpart to his wordiness. right but i mean she brought vampires really out into the open again and has you know made a thing out of it in new orleans so you know she definitely gets props there oh for sure yeah jr ward just my last vampire she's my favorite vampire author if anybody else does like vampires along with me jr ward black dagger brotherhood amazing this is not for kids this is definitely adult but amazing so talking about books and like horror and this is not horror at all but there's a conspiracy about bookstores and it's fucking hilarious and I wanted to share it because it came up in an article that or I just saw the the article was written in 2015 but I saw it circulating again recently this is fucking hilarious and I just wanted to close out with this phenomenon conspiracy oh I'm excited the Mariko Aoki phenomenon have you ever heard of this no (laughs) Have you ever gone into a bookstore? You don't have to answer this. I'm just hypothetically. <laughs> okay. Have you ever walked into a bookstore and just been browsing and been like, I got a shit. Well, you're not alone. <laughs> what the fuck? Okay. 
there is an expression, a Japanese expression referring to the urge to really have to shit that is suddenly felt after entering a bookstore. What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) The phenomenon's name derives from the name of a woman who mentioned the phenomenon in a magazine and in an article in 1985. And according to a Japanese social psychologist, the specific causes that trigger the urge in a bookstore are not yet clearly understood as of 2014. But apparently, this is a whole thing. This urge cannot be explained from a medical perspective as a single pathological concept, but according to a number of discussions on the topic, even if it can be sufficiently found that the phenomenon actually exists, it is a concept that would be difficult to be deemed a specific pathological entity. So apparently everyone shits in a Barnes and Noble. I've never had that problem. I've never walked into a bookstore and gone, I have to, I gotta go. Ever. (laughs) What the hell? And then it's named after her? Like, that's terrible. That is not a good thing to be known for. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I I saw, like, a thing about it, and there were, like, a hundred-something thousand, like, reactions and stuff that were like, oh, yeah. It's a thing. What the hell is wrong with you people? Well, I don't, maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's like the smell of books is like comforting like home and your body's like, oh, yes, we are home. Let's shit. <laughs> maybe that's it. You know, people are used to reading on the on the toilet. They're like, all right, you got a book. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. And with that, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us for this happy hour. We hope you enjoyed learning about some of these writers. We hope it kept your interest. If it didn't, I mean... That's okay, but I mean, I thought it was interesting, so. And we hope this made you need to go take a shit. Yeah, Until next you're time, stay creepy.